Hello, and welcome to the On Growth Podcast. I'm Josh Ledgard, and I'm one of the founders at Kickoff Labs. Today's guest had a job until the pandemic hit in the spring. He found himself at home with a small child and a lot of free time. Now, he's raised over $2.5 million on his Kickstarter campaign for Fort, the magnetic pillow fort, and there are still 19 days remaining. Connor Lewis has an inspirational story, and this interview is filled with tactical steps that took him from losing his job to launching a successful Kickstarter. Enjoy the show. So Connor, you must feel pretty good right now. So tell me what's going on with you. Well, I am on basically day four of a monster um, crowdfund raise, basically, for the probably the oddest product I can ever think of to raise millions of dollars. So I'm the founder of Fort, which is a magnetic pillow fort. And basically, it's a set of, if I dumb it down really simply, it's a set of these really uh, basic like uh, cushions with this really durable fabric. And we, we've worked magnets into all these uh, different places and created this tower that can disassemble and reassemble in all these various ways that kids can enjoy. And we're at uh, just under 2.4 million as I'm speaking right now on day four. Wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. Just, uh, I can, I'm looking at the campaign right now and it says 26 days to go, um, <laughs> 7,858 backers as of this moment. And that's right. uh, Two million three hundred ninety-four thousand nine hundred fifty-two pledged for the project. And to add to your description about the product, the cushions with the magnets, I will say when I first saw you guys creating the campaign on Kickoff Labs to collect email addresses, I thought to myself as a parent of two children, I said, that is awesome because uh, anybody who's a parent knows, at least in, in my house, like if you have couch cushions or any sort of cushions and blankets around. They're almost never where you intend them to be as a parent. They're almost always stacked in some sort of like fort-like shape or yes. some sort of building or wall or something to, to play with. And that is what the couch cushions are for. They are not for sitting on the couch. You know, and I don't even think I realized how universal that was until I started reaching out to people on Facebook and other, uh, mostly mothers, but um, fathers as well. It, it is weirdly universal that kids are going to rip the couch cushions off and take the, the nice throw blanket and like construct something. So I just basically made a more expensive version of that. Yeah. And, uh, and I also had a conversation with Scott, my, uh, my co-founder the other day when we saw your, uh, we saw your official Kickstarter launch and we were talking about it and he's, and he's like, Oh, can you, can we get our own discount too? <laughs> it's like, he's like, I want it for my kids. I'm like, I'll talk to him about it. Yeah. I think, I think it's, I think it's pretty universal. It looks really cool. So Let's go back a little bit. So tell me, tell me about you and your background. So like, yeah. are you an engineer? Are you somebody who like designs these types of things for a living anyway? Um, how did you, how did you get, get to where you are now? Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely a, a Swiss army knife of uh, creativity basically. And that's great and terrible at the same time. I started out basically in high school uh, with creative projects, learning Photoshop and video production um, moved to college and, and was a very, very poor college student until I found out that there was an art school in college uh, where I got to study um, painting and sculpture and mostly graphic design because uh, I had kind of a love of computers. So um, I kind of worked my way from there, uh, worked my way into corporate advertising and marketing. 
And at the time, uh, in uh, April 2020, I was working for basically like a high net worth individual in his uh, what they call like a family office. He invests in real estate and all sorts of other things. His day job was a lawyer. And I worked on a team um, doing all sorts of crazy, interesting, creative projects. And obviously, we all know what happened in spring 2020. COVID hit. And, uh, you know, the creative, fun young guys who make videos and do social media projects are, are, are usually the first to go. Um, so uh, it was a great job and it taught me a ton about business. Um, but I was kind of looking at my life, realizing I had just lost my job. My wife was pregnant with our second child and I, I had a great job. So, you know, we weren't necessarily struggling financially as many as many across the country were at that time. But, uh, you know, I had a I had a limited runway, shall we say, um, of time to, to know that I could I needed to find another job. The market was not great. Um, and uh, I was basically a stay-at-home dad. Um, so uh, when you're a stay-at-home dad, the couch cushions get thrown off a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so I'm at home with my kids or with my two-year-old and, and my pregnant wife. And in my Evernote, uh, on my phone, you know, where I jot down all my notes, is a magnetic pillow fort. Um, literally written magnetic pillow fort, which is basically the subhead on my Kickstarter campaign right now. Almost mm-hmm. word for word. And uh, it just struck me that what if I put like a magnetic connector around the side of like a a big block cushion, what would happen? And um, all this was happening right with this craze of all these mothers and fathers staying home, being trapped with their kids and this thing called the nugget couch, uh, which is basically became like buying Air Jordans, uh, hard to get and limited. And so I saw this nugget couch and I was like, okay, that's really cool. It's like play furniture. And I was like, what if I kind of took that a few steps further, made something just for playing, just something that my daughter uh, could like run around and knock down? Because I remember knocking down force with half the fun. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I made this very odd transition all the way from kind of like artist and corporate like advertising to entrepreneur and, and kind of took it from there, basically. So you, you, your background is much more on the marketing side of things. So you said, I heard you say you were creating some videos. I heard you say you were doing like social media campaigns for this individual you've been working for. Can you uh, tell me, what did your V1 of the product look like? Like, how did you go about, say, how did you go about like designing, constructing, sort of building sort of a test version of the product? Because obviously it seems to exist. And so like, how did you do that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I really credit art school in a, in a very interesting way with teaching me how to make things. So when you kind of come up through the creative lines like that, if you start in art school, you get a really a, a strong foundation in like kind of an analytical thinking, thinking differently. So that helps with the problem solving. But then you also learn quite literally construction, right? Um, we, we studied welding and sculpture. We studied uh, 3D design on computers. And then, you know, working my way through all of these uh, marketing things, it basically taught me how to problem solve very quickly. So, you know, when I had the idea, I was already trained enough to be able to draw, right? So took went straight to a sketchbook, started sketching out ideas based on shapes and things like that. And um, I had worked when I was working for this individual. I had actually done a documentary film. Uh, I directed a film that went to film festivals. So I learned how to project project manage on kind of a, a bigger scale underneath someone who was kind of the head mm-hmm. poncho. And so I basically took those same principles that I learned from him. And, um, you know, I was like, OK, here's my sketches. So now I need a product designer. 
um, and uh, found freelance product designers. Okay, so so where did you find the freelance um, product designer? Um, that was for better or worse. I went to Upwork. You know, there's Upwork and Fiverr and a few freelance networks. I knew I wanted someone good, and I knew I and I had a very limited budget, right? So I had a few thousand dollars. I probably haven't put more than ten or twenty of my personal money into this project uh, to get it going. So it's it's completely bootstrapped, which I'm which I'm super proud of. So yeah, uh, I went to Uplands and I found someone who uh, you know. You get a lot of international people. I found someone who spoke English really well. I found someone whose portfolio really jived with mine. Um, you know, we kind of interviewed. I saw what he did. Um, I talked to a bunch of people. I said, you know, what's your experience with kids' products? What is your experience with furniture? What is your experience with technical drawings um, and all these things? And uh, ultimately made the hire. And then it's really just a process of sending. Um, I had a leg up, right? I could draw. So Mm-hmm. I was able to send a lot of sketches and work with him on that and gave me a huge leg up. And within almost a month, we had a almost exactly what you see. Mm-hmm. And so the actual construction of it, were you, uh, were you running to the, the hardware store and buying like foam and your own magnets and sort of the nylon, like the fabric and like putting it around together yourself? Like how did that, I, I'm, I'm ignorant to this. So I'm just kind of curious yeah. about the whole process. So, you know, uh, what was interesting was that was where I hit my first kind of roadblock. I had never sewn before. Um, I knew that I kind of didn't want to do that. Going into this, I, you know, being kind of like a techie guy, loving entrepreneurship and startups and listening, you know, like Tim Ferriss podcast and everything, right? You kind of pick up some things. I was like, I know I want to outsource this. I know that I can't really afford to sit and do this. Honestly, I don't have the time. I have to make money quite literally to pay for my child's daycare. Um, that'll kind of light a fire under your butt at a certain yep. point. And so I went straight to how do I make something overseas? How do I make something in Mexico? How do I make something in the U.S.? And basically started cold emailing and uh, using all the various um, websites, Alibaba and AliExpress and Made in Mexico and India Mart and started reaching out to factories. I would find people who made phone products uh, I would look through all their photos and look to see if like the logos matched in the photo of the factory to the logo on the website and, you know, just try and um, pick up all these little tips about how to find somebody reputable. And yeah. so after about 40 factories, I connected with one or two and was able to kind of get quotes on this product. And after that, you kind of have to take the the leap of faith and say, will you be willing to make a sample of this? Um, which yeah. is one of the scariest parts because you don't know, A, like this is a new product. What if they steal this? You also don't know, can they actually do this? Or are they subcontracting out from another factory and just upcharging you? So there's some resources online. Something I, I would definitely suggest to people who want to get into product like this. Um, you can find affordable people to consult on this. I went through a program called Sourceify. It was pretty good for the most part. It taught me what I needed to know, um, how to source products. Um, But I I definitely recommend uh, reaching out to somebody, even for $100 to pay like a consultant, somebody who even maybe like a Chinese national or an Indian national uh, or from Vietnam, for example, um, you can pay them and have them kind of uh, walk you through the process or how to find a factory. It's not too impossible to find. 
So you went straight from sort of like the sketched notebook and the designs that you'd been working with on with your designer, and you went straight to getting like a like some samples back from the factories at that point. Yeah. So we basically took a 3D render from my designer. He hadn't even drafted technical specs yet. So, you know, he starts basically uh, was working in CAD. So basically we had like a, um, a three-dimensional block set that was, all, that was very similar to what I had. And I presented that to various factories and said, hey, here's the materials I want to use. Here's similar products that I, yep. that I know use these materials. And um, that kind of eliminated most of, uh, you know, you kind of got down pretty quickly. And also, you know, hey, do you have certifications? What are the safety standards, right? This is a children's product in the United States. There's a lot of safety standards. Not only that, but I care about that as well. We were able to take that 3D render and and kind of eliminate people and then uh, have him work up a technical spec pretty quickly. Cool. And then uh, what was it? What was that moment like for you when you got the sample back? It was baffling and so uh, frustrating in a, in a weird way. It was almost incomprehensible to see the thing I had made. Uh, and the perfectionist in me is like, oh, it was already like, oh, this is terrible. No one's going to buy this. And with a little perspective, I realized I started taking it to people's houses. It, I would literally drop it off on somebody's porch across the street from me who had kids and see what would happen. The terror or the super frustrating part was I ran into my first of the biggest challenges that I had to deal with, which was this product is freaking huge. It's like monstrous. It arrived at my door in these two huge boxes from China, and it cost me thousands of dollars to ship. And I got this bill, and I was like, oh, no, I'm completely sunk. Like, I can't afford to make this product. It's so expensive to ship. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I took it out of the box, it was unbelievable. It was actually, like, incredibly well made. I was shocked that it arrived at my door how it should and, and and it made me feel a lot better once I took it to people's houses and the kids were like, the parents were like, oh, they've been playing with it literally straight since you dropped it off here. So um, it was the weirdest uh, experience to go through, kind of seeing it come in, dealing with the kind of business ramifications and then seeing how the actual end customer may use it. So I want to, I want to talk about both of those things a little bit. So I want to talk about the the, the user testing. So you, you went and you, like you said, you literally just looked at your neighbors and said, can I drop this giant box off on your porch? And you just let your kids, <laughs> you just let your kids have at it. And uh, and you found most of them were probably, especially with uh, lockdowns and COVID, were probably pretty receptive to something their kids could do inside the house. Absolutely. I, I started with little boys, uh, some friends of ours in our neighborhood. We live in a, a neighborhood in the city of St. Louis and both uh, two little boys who are both four years old. And um, I, I would leave it there for a few days at their house and their parents would send me photos of just like absolute destruction. I mean, <laughs> dive bombing the thing, building something and, and running into it and jumping off of it. And it was incredibly satisfying to see just the joy and the ease of use and the creativity that was coming out of it. Mm -hmm. So almost immediately user testing, it validated the product. I, I certainly had concerns about cost and price, but it was really hard to deny the fun the kids were having. And we certainly had things that we were looking at that we can improve immediately. For example, I undershot the strength of the magnets, um, which you know is kind of the key selling point. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it turns out like magnets are not only very expensive 
but very kind of hard to work with with the sizes and strengths. And, and so we had to develop a custom magnet just to be able to support basically the perfect strength, right? Because if you have too strong of a magnet, a kid's finger may get pinched, something like that. Yeah. And um, obviously, you don't want them to support weight because that would be super dangerous. But you want them to be able to hold your structure um, without falling down. And we found that we were we were holding it, but it, you know they could still be bumped and fall down. So we that was like the first thing we reassessed. But mm-hmm. really, I mean, the shapes and all of it, the kids just took to it immediately. Cool. And so now, tell me about the cost concern because you got a sample product back. It cost you thousands of dollars to get the product back. And I can tell from the Kickstarter page, I mean, you've got kits you can get that start around 250, 270, 299, obviously not thousands of dollars per one of these kits. So how'd you overcome the the price factor and the fear there? Yeah, that was, um, that was a huge and still is a huge challenge, you know? Um, so from a business perspective, the, the Kickstarter itself, if I can start there and work backwards, you know, we we uh, were profitable from from day one, which is amazing. Not many Kickstarters are able to do that with a huge. We launched with a fifty percent off discount, and we were profitable on day one. Um, part of that is the economy of scale, but we're we're on a we're on a super tight margin unless we can kind of continue to scale the Kickstarter up. So working all the way back to the beginning, um, I received that sample, and the sample itself was not super expensive to produce, um, but the shipping was like astronomical, you know, and, and so that, that brings up a lot of issues, right? So as a marketing person, I'm thinking, how am I going to ship a unit to a reviewer or an influencer, right? That's going to be potentially hundreds of dollars. How am I going to get it to the end consumer? People want free day, two day shipping for free, right? And in the world of two day shipping, a small e-commerce business like mine, how am I going to work with the customer? What price am I going to be able to sell it at that I can actually make a profit um, on this because it is so expensive to ship. And then um, the magnets themselves add about 25 to 35% of the cost of the product. So the product mm-hmm. itself, if it was just foam, is a lot, is, is much cheaper, but, you know, with the stronger magnets. So, so those were issues we ran into right away. So we immediately started talking to fulfillment centers and looking into, can we compress this? Can we ship this in separate boxes? And what prices can we charge? Um, we, we wanted to be really unapologetic about this company has to profit. We're not here to do the tech, let's scale and make something for free, basically. And we need to pay for daycare, first of all. Yeah. And uh, I, I can't reiterate that enough because that's actually true. Right? And how can we profit on this and still make a really great product? Uh, what is that balance of pricing that we can walk? Cool. So it sounds like it's a kind of a combination of both figuring out the economies of scale, like shipping, like doing the initial orders and everything for the product and the magnets. I saw that you guys offer a version without the magnets, which is obviously probably helps a little bit if the magnets are 25 to 35% of the cost. And then also uh, also just kind of working through the shipping logistics of how you're going to get it to people and figuring out what the right price needs to be. Yeah, container shipping obviously is, is the cheapest. So bringing over containers um, and then also obviously expanding, hopefully to maybe a U.S., uh, some sort of U.S. assembly or factory, mm-hmm. all of those things, you know, you look into, but, you know, economies of scale, obviously. Cool. So we spent a lot of time, like, to getting to where you are today with the product. 
I want to talk about a product alone doesn't raise uh, two point, you know, almost two point four million dollars. I'm just watching it tick up as we do this. You must do that. You just leave it open, right? It just ticks up, and yes, um, I mean the first day it was going crazy. We can get there, but yeah, no, definitely. So let, let's talk about um, it, the product itself. I mean, it's an amazing looking product. I think I imagine that the test went really well, like you said, uh, dropping it off in the, at friends' houses. But you know, there's seven thousand eight hundred fifty nine people right now that have backed the product that came from an audience that you built. So let's start at the beginning in terms of when you started to think about like building the audience for the product and what were the first few things you did around audience building? Yeah, so so that actually goes right along with the kind of pricing and um, shipping concerns I had from the business perspective was this, uh, what I'm kind of referencing with those concerns was about in August um, of 2020, so I still hadn't launched publicly. I had built a brand, the support logo that you see with the colors. And I hired a, a friend who was a really good designer and illustrator to help me with all that. And uh, I was really researching the markets. And uh, I learned what I learned was with this nugget couch craze that was happening um, online, um, where these nugget couches became in so high demand that moms would resell them for twice the price or... Um, this Facebook group about the Nuggets had uh, tens of thousands of members and was crazy active all day. So I kind of uh, secretly snuck into these Facebook groups, kind of got to know who was in there and kind of what they were wanting, what they were frustrated with Nugget, who's, who's kind of like the who's the market leader. And then uh, realizing that there's a lot of these Nugget knockoffs that were coming up, people basically making the same thing as Nugget, but making it a little bit easier to get a hold of you know, uh, kind of capitalism at work there. Um, ultimately, Nugget will probably win that game. They're the strongest brand. But I was just kind of seeing all this and thinking my product probably fits into this. It's a little bit different, but I think these may be my first, you know, Kevin Kelly, first uh, thousand true fans, yeah. or, uh, first fans. And so what I did was um, after kind of learning in Facebook groups, understanding those people, this is actually where Kickoff Labs comes in is I, I built my landing page and I had some simple photos based off of my first sample. I, I think I may have even launched without the sample in my hands in the U.S. And I started running really simple Facebook ads targeted to parents who had kids of certain ages. And pretty quickly, I was getting emails from people wondering what this was and wondering if they can share it in a Facebook group. And basically, I had kind of found my audience just through simple Facebook ads and targeting. And actually, basically within almost 24 hours, I got 1,500 leads on Kickoff Labs because someone had shared it in this Nugget group. And I had kind of built off of the back of this other brand by kind of differentiating myself. Okay, so I want to, I want to recap what you said because uh, yes. it's a great uh, step by step. Uh, so you had basically zero email addresses collected. Yes. You start out and you say, "Hey, as part of market research, I'm going to embed myself into these groups of competitor groups, basically. So like yes. Nugget groups and the parent Facebook groups that we're talking about building or doing DIY like similar similar things. Yeah. Yeah. So you embed yourself in those in those groups to kind of do market research and then also kind of build a little bit of a reputation in those groups. You Actually, I tried to connect with people in those groups. And um, self-promotion in Facebook groups is, yep. yeah, I almost just was a, a silent 
Okay, so you you are lurking to do market research. Yeah. Okay, so you're lurking to do market research. That's a great clarification. And then you put up a um, uh, a Kickoff Labs uh, landing page for the product. And um, what I'm looking at right now is the Kickoff Labs landing page, launch.getthefort.com. And I don't remember looking at it right when uh, right when you guys launched it, but I imagine you kind of went with a very similar simple design, right? It is not that different from probably. Yeah, I think about 30 days in, we kind of got to this version, which is very, very simple. But yes, it did not change much. Yeah, I mean, literally, it takes up uh, just one screen for anybody who's just listening to this on a podcast. And we'll post the images of this stuff in the in the recap so people can see it. But just to describe your landing page, very simply, you've got your bright, colorful logo. You've got your your tagline says magnets plus foam equals kid kid magic. And then you've got a call to action, which is sign up now to get the fort with a Kickstarter discount. And then just a checklist of like product benefits. Mm-hmm. Really simple magnets mean builds don't fall down easily, saves your couch cushions, don't need parent help, easily wipeable and, uh, and for and stackable for storage. And then, you know, you're kind of getting people with this bonus on the bottom. But that's literally the page. I think I just read through. <laughs> yeah. And you're only asking for a first name uh, and an email address. And I think that's important to call out the simplicity here because a lot of people get overly stressed when they're marketing uh, a product like this and they'll feel the need to sort of take all each of those bullet points you have before you've launched the product and just expand. And, oh, I have to explain the science that goes into the magnets and they have create this whole section on the magnets. And I have to explain the problem and the couch cushions and they have the whole section that goes into the couch cushions. But at this stage, you realize you didn't need that, you knew that, or you just said, I only have time for this. And so I'm just going to put up the really simple version. You know, that's a great question. I will say for this product specifically, customer education is super important. But I was giving what seemed to be the four main points that people wanted. And um, previously, instead of sign up now for the Kickstarter discount, it gave the actual offer I was offering. So at the time, it was sign up now for or get on the list for 50% off uh, when we launch, right? And then the the call to action button after first name and email um, sign up is get the discount or get 50% off or I want 50% off, those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. So we kept it really, really simple. And the reason was after they go through this page, we send them, you know, the email that Pickoff Labs does and we try to get them almost immediately into our Facebook group, right? Because I knew that Facebook groups is where all of this built. And so I was able to convert, uh, you know, almost 15 to 20% of my email list into a Facebook group, which um, because I knew the Nugget group had so much power and they actually, the Nugget um, company does not actually own or run that group. It's a fan, it's a fan account. So I knew I wanted my own, you know, uh, I wanted my own owned channel and I wanted to be able to teach the customers there and kind of evangelize them and then have them go out further. Yeah, and so that's one thing I noticed when you posted a tweet um, a couple of days ago, uh, and I've been following along, uh, when you said uh, my pre-launch stats and it says uh, email list 78,000. Those are leads you mostly collected on Kickoff Labs, I imagine. Yes. Um, and then you say, you just talked about the Facebook groups. So you converted about 13,000 of those people into a Facebook group by encouraging them in the email to join up um, and the follow-ons, uh, I imagine, from uh, the initial email collection. And then 10,000 to, to, to an Instagram page. And then 
also you're collecting an SMS list. So people were giving you uh, their phone numbers. How are you going about collecting that information as well? Yeah, that was something I, I looked at doing through Kickoff Labs. I got really nervous about the the compliance issues. It's and for anyone doing that, it, I highly recommend looking into compliance. It can get sticky. Mm-hmm. So we uh, brought on SMS late. Um, so mm-hmm. when we had reached our first uh, like thousand uh, email list members and first few hundred members in our Facebook group, we learned pretty quickly that specifically moms of young children, email is not super important to them. I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but a lot of a lot of the mothers may not be in the professional work field full time, so email isn't their lifeblood all the time. Yep. Um, but their phone number may be, and mm-hmm. so we got a lot of specifically mothers who were like, "Hey, can we get an option so we can get updated?" So even if you just text us, "Hey, there's an email in your inbox," because yep. um, they're just so busy with kids and everything and life that we knew we wanted to offer that. We didn't offer it uh, right away. We actually built that in January. So we started uh, in early January, just before launch. And so you just basically emailed the list and said, hey, if anybody wants to be notified via SMS, you can sign up here. Yes, and we used uh, PostScript for that. Uh, Really easy to use. Um, We're using Klaviyo for email. And Mm -hmm. basically, yeah, blast the email list. And um, most of our conversions, of course, came through our Facebook group, right? The people who we've been nurturing and educating and becoming friends with. We said, hey, we've got an SMS option. You know, um, sign up here and made everything all everything was compliant and super easy and breezy, and um, it it worked out really well. Yeah, the takeaway I, I had from that when I read when I read your tweet, and I think it's a really good best practice, is not to lean a hundred percent into one communication channel when you're building an audience for several reasons. I think the benefit for you guys is it's harder to get locked out of one in particular. So if like something happened with like email domain, or just like you're not able to reach out for whatever reason, you're not just tied to email. If Facebook says, for whatever reason, we're going to shut down your Facebook group, you don't just have the Facebook group audience. And then you also have people that you say like, hey, I want a more intimate connection. You get that SMS connection. So you've got you've got multiple avenues and ways to connect people from your perspective that's beneficial. And from the consumer perspective, Everybody has their preferences. I'm sure you have people that like only ever follow up on Instagram. I'm sure you have people that only ever follow up on, uh, you know, read the SMS messages and not the emails. There's a benefit to building more than just one audience. And the focus uh, should be on building multiple channels to your audience. I, I think that was something early on that I knew when I was studying um, the kind of the strategy behind all of these things. That was something I knew I wanted to focus on early on. I knew I would kind of work my way there, and I knew I continually wanted to own my own channels more. I knew email was our our, our bedrock, and I went out from there. It is really interesting thinking about where your customer is and then how you can kind of transfer them to other places and where to move in the in how you're marketing, right? So we knew that Facebook groups were the most powerful. We started in Facebook groups to get them to email, which is where we knew we wanted to capture them. Mm-hmm. And then after Facebook groups, we, when we had felt that we kind of tapped that for the most part, people were getting tired of people using the viral sharing uh, kickoff labs link. And, you know, in their other Facebook groups, we were like, okay, it's time to move to Instagram for the channel. Let's continue to build that next channel. Um, so it kind of kept going like that. Did you do anything to encourage the viral sharing? Because kickoff labs is a product obviously enables people to uh, once you've collected the email address, and in your case, I was brought to, at this point, a page that says, and I love this tagline for a sharing page, it says, getting discounts uh, Getting discounts makes uh, makes it easier when you tell your spouse. 
and then <laughs> links to share um, yes. the product on Facebook, Twitter, email uh, with the with the copy link. So was that all you did to encourage the sharing? Did you do anything else to encourage people to share along the course of the campaign? We did a few different strategies, some that worked, some that didn't. Um, we always had the share link. We always had the leaderboard, uh, the very simple leaderboard you offer, which is you know the total number of entries, which, which at a certain point, people actually really enjoy seeing how many emails you have when they're rooting for you. The, the position that you are in. Um, but, you know, on the first page uh, of our um, Kickoff Labs landing page, you know, we say Kickstarter backers are automatically entered to win a free fort. Mm -hmm. So I go into more depth. Um, this is an updated, you're actually looking at an older uh, or a newer thank you yep. page that just goes to Kickstarter. So it's not quite the one we had, but basically I said, I kind of outlined the details of like, we're going to give away five forts to the top five sharers trying to incentivize people to kind of climb the leaderboard. We got a little bit of pushback about that sometimes, you know, people saying, oh, this is like one of those kind of uh, scammy, whatever. Um, but for the most part, that didn't happen too much. Um, and mm -hmm. people kind of enjoyed trying to share. And, um, you know, we're going to try and offer, you know, a giveaway to everyone who's shared with at least one email as well to incentivize people to share, which I think is also something you can do especially if your leaderboard is unattainable, right? Our top five shares, I shared with quite literally over 500 or 1,000 e other email addresses, which is yeah. unattainable for someone else coming in. But uh, it really is a really powerful engine. And you just kind of keep educating people. And I, I think it's pretty simple for the most part. So I, I want to just recap uh, what I heard you say is, one, uh, you weren't shy about showing the total, uh, the total entries of people that had signed up. Um, and in fact, in your case, it feels like a benefit because it kind of gets people involved in the mission. Like they get excited, like, oh, you know, because I shared there now there's, you know, 95,000 because I shared now the numbers going up there. And I think that can be a powerful thing if you're creating a product that can get fans behind it to have a movement that in and of itself is probably motivational. Then you were giving, giving away a free fort to, you say, a few backers who share the most. So I was a little bit confused, and you've probably changed this a couple of times. You you were going to give it away to the top people sharing, which, as you pointed out, um, most of those numbers are probably unattainable to the average person. And then you were also going to do a general drawing amongst people that had at least one share so that you had something for anybody to possibly enter. Yeah, so that was a later, definitely a later addition. We wanted to, and we tested a few different giveaways, but when we were looking at Almost, you know, at a certain point, raising that email list was getting kind of fun, right? You know, you're crossing, we crossed 50,000 in December and it was, you know, it's just a crazy number. And yeah. so what we did, especially when you get people complaining, there's no way that I could actually win a free one. Um, we thought, what could we do to potentially make this keep engagement? And really, you know, when you look at the stats and you know this better than I, I think less than 5% of our total list had actually yep. shared. And is that about right? What is that stat normally? Uh, it averages about 5 to 7% of people okay. end up getting a successful verified share yeah. in a and, campaign. Yeah. And that's not a, that's, that's not a, that's a good number. It just, you know, it, yeah. that, it, you really are, are happy to get those kind of numbers for engagement. And I'm guessing that, um, especially with our, I'm guessing that a lot of the times there are maybe a full another percent of your email list that had shared, but not used a special link or something like that. Yep. And, um, you know, that I've, we've gotten those emails, of course, but um, we uh, sent out, you know, the educational email with the walkthrough of how to do it and said, hey, 
we'd love to offer. It's a much smaller pool, right? I think it was only about 2,000 people had actually shared out of 60,000 people at that time. And so, um, you know, we uh, said that we were going to offer uh, one or two units maybe to um, the top, or two, two, one or two random people on the actually had verified shared list. Yep. It's just another way to engage and kind of maybe keep those um, emails flowing. It's, it's something we often recommend as a best practice is to think about the two different sides of your audience. One is people that you may have known or discovered through the process are really just influ- influencers in the space. So if somebody's able to get you know more than five other people, they probably have some sort of undue influence in the space, or like you know maybe they run a local toy store, maybe there's like something you don't know. And we always find out that people end up discovering these people they didn't even know in local markets that were influencers and building a stronger relationship with those set of people, but then making sure you don't forget about what's in it, like what feels attainable to the to the average person. And to get that five to, to six percent, to get that number up a little bit, it's really beneficial to do what you did, which is to say, make something that feels attainable to the person who's not an influencer, who's just a mom, who's just not just a mom, but who's yeah, sure. who's who's not is not in the industry, who can't get you a thousand connections, but they might be able to get you three to four uh, connections. Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to activate that person with some little bit of motivation. And so a I think you did a great job like realizing that and putting out the one, the simpler promotion. And then B, the thing that you mentioned, which uh, caught my ear, some people miss, is that you reinforced it through education. So it sounds like you were sending out through Clavio follow-up emails during the campaign to remind people to do it and educating them on how, why, and where uh, they can share, correct? I think education is the reason we raised $2.2 million in under 10 hours. I think, um, I think if you're looking at kind of the middle American mother and father or family, like our target is, I think education is essential. There's so many questions they have, parents of young children, you have children, I mean, I have young kids. It is so important. We educated them on how to use these technical things like a a share link that they may not have done before. We educated them on magnets on the product itself. A lot of this happened in the Facebook group. A ton happened over email. Um, you know, I got Loom, uh, the the screen sharing app, just to, to do screen shares. We educated, we literally did three or four walkthroughs on how to back a Kickstarter. I actually backed a Kickstarter. I got it. It was funny enough. This is kind of a, a funny story, but I, I made a, a Loom screen share for my Facebook group and email list to walk them through the process of how to back a Kickstarter because I knew I was bringing new people who had never even heard of Kickstarter to Kickstarter. And so I backed this project and on launch day, when we launched, I got the product I backed within like six weeks. And I was like, that is a great omen for me shipping my Kickstarter on time. <laughs> so I felt really good about that. But, um, you know, I think that was uh, just so essential for us. And actually, the stat backs that up. Um, I, I tweeted, uh, I think this morning about, um, I think, 75%, 65 to 75% of our backers had never even been on the platform before. So that is almost completely opposite of what most Kickstarters do which means we've got a lot of room for organic growth. But that just tells you how much education we did uh, up front. Yeah, I, I think that that part is critical. So to dig in a little bit more, so you talked about you filmed videos, um, how to share, how to back Kickstarter, just every little thing. And so you you don't assume that your customer knows everything you know, which is extremely important. Um, how often were you reaching out to the list throughout this process? That's another question we get all the time because people are scared. They say, oh, well, 
you know, I don't want to send too many emails and scare them off of my list. And they're really paranoid about that. So can you kind uh, of explain per each channel, like how often you're reaching out in each of the channels that you, uh, that we've talked about the email, the SMS, the Facebook group and the Instagram. So I would say earlier on, you know, uh, months out, um, we would try to convert them very quickly to the Facebook group. So that would be one or two emails within the first week. And if they didn't quite go there, they would get basically one email a week from Clavio. And then if they were in the Facebook group, we were doing videos all the time, screen shares. I would just shoot an iPhone video answering a question personally about maybe a, a potential customer had a, had a concern. So there was that point of contact there. I actually also uh, did what I called a tour de fort. Um, I drove, I had a plan to drive around the Midwest where I'm based in St. Louis and visit people outside in parks and have them drive by and show them the fort pieces. Most of it was canceled because we had some issues with shipping and obviously COVID challenges, but um, we did actually leave town to go do one of these. And it was very interesting to kind of do a, a boots on the ground thing. But um, we would basically send one email a week and um, we started ramping that up about six weeks before with about two emails a week, um, starting to really try and push accessories, uh, talk about colors and kind of release new information to really get people excited. Of course, our unsubscribe rate went up, but, um, you know, and I was torn all the time. But for the most part, I think if they're going to unsubscribe, they're going to unsubscribe. And I think with this audience, they were so hungry for information. You have to really know your audience that we, uh, they wanted more from us. And so we just kept giving them more and we kind of found out who the true people were. Yeah, I think that's important to realize that that uh, as, a, as a lesson for people is that, yeah, you're going to get uh, unsubscribes, but if you had said nothing, so the worst case scenario, and, and this happens sadly way too often I see is people will collect, you know, 10, 20,000 email addresses on Kickoff Labs. They won't be following up and then when they launch, they'll say, hey, I didn't really make that much money off of off of the launch and the email list. And, and I'll ask them after the fact, and I'll say, well, wh what emails did you send? And they said, well, we send them a thank you email for signing up. And then we sent them an email on launch day. <laughs> that's and excellent. Like, yeah. I'm like, I, that, oh, that is, I don't know what else to say, but that's a recipe for, for failure um, because like I sign up for tons of stuff and like if it's anything more than like a week later, like I'll have forgotten what I signed up for. And so when the email comes like two months later, I'll be like, what is this thing? I don't remember this. But if you're constantly top of mind, yeah, you might lose a few people, but the people who are interested in even potential buyers are probably just not, they might just delete the email. They might not read it, but they're not going to unsubscribe. And then they might read every third email or every fourth one that comes in and then they're going to be, you know, they say it takes like in the classic thing is it takes seven touches to make a fan or like get somebody to purchase. You've built up that series of touches, some of them personal, some of them less personal, uh, depending on the channel. So that when you hit the launch button and said to your blast, everybody says we're live now, you had a bunch of people that were already activated and ready to take action on what you were on what you were doing. So I think we've now led up to the part where we mentioned earlier. So what was that launch day like for you? So you, you, you obviously pressed launch on all of these channels and said, it's live, like, go get it. Like, is it that simple? Like, how did it go? And, and what, uh, what happened next? It was, I mean, as you can imagine, it was absolutely insane. Um, we had, uh, because we our email is scaled so much, we actually, our original product, our original discount offering was 50% off. Um, when we hit 10,000 emails, we realized we actually would 
potentially lose thousands and thousands of dollars on 50% off. So we had to readjust really quickly and say, for the next part of the future, the discount we're offering now is is 45% off. So we raised the price by $20. And so we had this very odd situation where we had 10,000 emails of our 1,000 true fans who were getting this for 50% off. And then weirdly, that move to 45% off spurred a crazy uh, influx of people wanting to get the discount in case it moved up again. It's almost a scarcity thing. Yep. So on launch day, um, we were launching on uh, Kickstarter to this 50% off crowd first, who we knew were our most like rabid fans um, and yep. all that education and everything. Every email came from Connor at Fort. It didn't just come from Fort. Everything was super personalized, all the education. And so um, once I launched that 50% off, I had people who were in what we call the 45% off group, just waiting on Kickstarter, refreshing, trying to get the 50% off discount. So, you know, uh, it was bananas, um, basically. We, we did uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars within the first 30 minutes, something like $500,000. Um, you know, we knew our email list that that those 10,000 people would potentially convert as high as 10%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it ultimately converted higher than that. And then, um, you know, we knew that the 70,000 other emails would convert almost the same, maybe just a little bit lower, more like 8%. And I think we did do that. And so we we basically just got on our emails and on the Facebook comments and just rode that wave all day, typing until our fingers hurt, responding to people. So when you say rode that wave and, and were responding to people, like, were you getting questions? Like were people, um, like what were you responding to during that day? Yeah. So, so most of the questions we got were in relation to the discount tiers that we had offered. Um, we had done a ton of education, but we still, even with all of our hard work, we still fell a little bit short so um, we probably got 100, 150 emails that day, um, mostly from people who were familiar with Fort, who were in the Facebook group, who, um, who knew about us. And so we were just kind of dealing with that. The other ones were, hey, I don't know how to do this. It doesn't say, for example, um, it doesn't say purchase on here mm-hmm. or checkout, right? If you're familiar with Kickstarter, you'd be like, oh, that's because it's called reward and it's called a backing or a pledge. Yeah. And so we kind of had to do, um, and those were usually the people who obviously didn't watch my screen shares, yeah. which, you know, you can't blame them. But um, so uh, it was it was also uh, customer stuff like that. And like I said, you know, almost 75% of our audience had never even heard of Kickstarter before. Mm-hmm. So we really had to do day of, um, and we, uh, my, uh, I hired my, actually my best friend to do customer service for me. He's a former Apple employee and he uh, kind of knows all that crazy customer service stuff. Having dealt with it, he built out this huge document, literally copy and paste. We also had to deal a lot with international and Canadians. Um, unfortunately, we weren't really able with obviously our shipping challenges to, to, to go there as well. So there was a lot of kind of fielding those questions. Hey, are you mm-hmm. shipping the UK? Hey, are you shipping to Australia? That's going to make you feel good, though. I mean, you start with this idea and you've got a now worldwide audience of people that like are interested in the product. It is insane, especially when I'm looking at kind of the future and how to be competitive in the market. And, and you know, this product's price is $3.99 at retail. And I feel very good about that. That's a product that we can sustainably build a business. But I'm certainly nervous. But knowing that people in Canada you know, we, we even have a few thousand people on our emails in Canada waiting, ready to buy. And I'm super excited to scale there because um, when I yeah. look at, you know, Nugget, which is definitely the market leader, I, I think 
you know, Nugget is in my mind is Uber, right? Um, yeah. They've got all this, uh, they've got all this press, maybe a little bit of drama. And so if they're going to do that, we're going to be Lyft, right? So a little more fun, a little more pink, obviously, because pink is like our color. And so that's kind of what we're going for is how can we uh, approach these customers that they haven't quite gotten to yet. Cool. So kind of gotten through my list of questions. I like to end this kind of round up our conversation to say, what haven't we talked about that you think is really important for somebody who's looking to do something similar? Maybe somebody who's got a physical product who wants to start a Kickstarter campaign who knows they need to build an audience, like what haven't we talked about or what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I think my story is an outlier in that there were things that coalesced to make this uh, such a viral product, mostly COVID, the the nugget craze. Um, I was lucky to capitalize on that and and kind of um, use that. Not everybody is going to have that, but there will be an audience somewhere. Um, You have to find them and find how they work And I see people too often going into where they found the audience, but not working with the audience. You know, for example, the self-promotion in Facebook groups is not what you do. But what you can do is find out a way to target those people with ads and try to reach them or reach out one-on-one. And so that kind of thing is is doing the marketing the right way and really personalizing it. I always put my name and my face in front of the brand, Uh, not too much so as to totally disassociate it as Connor instead of Fort, but um, that was really huge. And then I, I can't encourage people enough to um, really look at, you know, the finances of things. Kickstarter is not, it's, it's really fun to be kind of glamorous about it. But at the end of the day, if you're running a business, Kickstarter is a really challenging platform. You're offering a discount for something that you don't even have money to make in, in most cases. And so, you know, we've had to be really cautious. And uh, for, uh, you know, my goal is to be bootstrapped and we are thus far. I, I have borrowed um, some money from family members that that I I've already accounted for paying back. But you know, I think it's think really hard about those crowdfunding platforms. And there's a lot of really cool options out there. Things that you can launch on Shopify. There's plugins that you could do a crowdfund on Shopify. You know, uh, shoot for different goals, things like that. I don't think a million dollar raise is for everyone. Having done it. It is really, really cool. And it's kind of that tagline, like, you know, Oscar nominee, whatever. You know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, Connor Lewis raises $2 million in Kickstarter. But I, I really think, you know, think about what is best for your business. And um, we knew we wanted the media attention. We knew we wanted the, yeah. um, to get as many units of these out as cheaply and efficiently as possible. And then hopefully people wouldn't balk at the price later on when we were offering them full price and we could continue yeah. to scale that way. So you remind, you remind me of one follow-up question I had from earlier. So yeah. I've heard uh, some people have given me numbers uh, with Kickstarter projects and they said, you know, to raise whatever number you want to raise, expect to spend 20% of that number on advertising. So did you spend 20% of $2 million on advertising? No. <laughs> I think you're setting me up for this because you probably saw my tweets. I spent it's on my desktop. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna verify this right now. Under three thousand dollars to get eighty thousand leads. So it's a great example of first the virality of the product. The product sold itself in a lot of ways because of this nugget craze. The kids play mm-hmm. furniture. It's a great example of the virality of sharing in the right market. Um, maybe uh, board gamers aren't going to share like the moms who like play furniture, you know, 
and then it's i mean it's a great for kickoff labs right because i your your engine powered that not to over promote you on your own podcast but it certainly helped um, we are sponsored by kickoff labs so. yeah 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 so at this point i am i just bought a year membership just because i was like i think i'm probably going to use this again <laughs> we're, we're looking at maybe using it again for a launch in may um kind of doing the same thing i, I think there's there's something really powerful, uh, maybe doing it a little bit differently, but yeah, I mean, I, I, we got really lucky in that and I, not everybody will be that lucky, but there is a way to do it. And I didn't use growth hacking techniques. I didn't use sneaky PR. I just reached out to people and the virality of the product mixed with the virality of the sharing and putting them into the right place, that Facebook group, educating them and then moving to Instagram. That's what kind of changed it. Were you spending all of your time in one-on-one communications or were you always responding publicly generally? Like if somebody would ask a question, you'd post the answer broadly on Facebook. In the Facebook group, I was in there a lot until it got overwhelming. It kind of actually became my full-time job. And so I had to um, hire someone to help me manage that. Um, So most of it was pretty public posting and um, making videos for people. But of course, there there was tons of emails. But for the most part, those questions that got emailed to me would come up in person. And what I would do is I'd make a video, I'd post it to our Facebook page, I post it to the um, Instagram page, things like that just helped a ton. Yeah, no, you should absolutely, uh, you should absolutely uh, do similar launch things. It's been pretty common and successful for people that have had a, a, a first launch like you guys to then say, okay, well, when we do the actual launch, I'm going to do it this way. And then to do the regional launches as well. So we've had people have a lot okay. of success saying like, get on the Canadian wait list for when the ship's in Canada or when yeah. the ship's in, in the UK. Um, that's been fairly successful for people as well to do like a more regional um, approach of when you know you're launching in specific regions. Okay, that's brilliant. Yeah, we're looking at we're looking at May to do a um, kind of like a product release and maybe do like a limited edition, right? A run of two thousand of forts in a special color that we'll only do one time. Yeah, and so maybe using uh, using a sort of sharing campaign or um, engagement campaign of some sort. You know, follow on Instagram and and get on the list to get this product. Um, a little bit of a scarcity, but a, well, real scarcity. We actually yeah. make genuinely 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, it fits in the container. So. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's at a certain point, it's also what you can afford. So uh, yeah. there is that. But yeah, absolutely. That's, that's very interesting. Um, I think those are the things that I'm thinking are the big things that I learned. And um, I, I do, I definitely want to encourage people to go for it. I think I, I think I, I'm really about like being realistic, but also like there is a healthy level of delusion that comes with this. Yeah. You know, I'm, I made, um, I was, I've been joking with my wife, my story, like the, in local news in St. Louis, is basically like local man loses job, sells foam on internet. That's like, you know, like that's my story, right? Like so, um, or local dad loses job, sells foam on the internet. So, you know, there's a healthy level of delusion to think I'm going to make a magnetic pillow fort and sell it on the internet. So it's like uh, every kid's dream when you ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? A toy tester. And you're yeah, like, I yeah. now build toys. <laughs> oh, you know what the sad thing about being owning a toy company is, is you don't play with your own toy very much at all because you're always doing businessy things. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> all the kids have way more fun than me. Um, but yeah, no, it is a it's it's been really interesting. So I'm I'm super grateful and really excited by everything, obviously. Now we're just in the slump of trying to figure out how to run those ads. We do have some cash set aside. Like, I mean, we obviously didn't spend, what would it be, $200,000, 10% of $2 million. Yeah. That's, that'd be five times as much as we even put into launching the company. Uh, we yeah. do have some cash set aside to help scale up Facebook ads for the 
um, Kickstarter, it is going to be a real grind. I won't lie. You know, most of our growth is the email list. So that's something that we're encountering right now is how do we scale through PR and Facebook ads? And that's, that is my current real, very real challenge. Yeah. I think you, it feels like you've had a lot of success getting real personal with your leads and, and your customers as you've started like building the business in the audience. And I think you've got a really compelling story to tell. And so I think there's probably a good market for you to just get that story more broadly out of the St. Louis area and tell it more broadly. Hopefully we can be part of <laughs> expanding yeah, that story and, uh, and, and sharing it. And, um, and I would, I would look at leaning into that if I were you guys, cause I think it is a really, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a viral product. Uh, it's one where there's a need uh, either with or without the pandemic. I honestly think there's a there's a problem space and a need. Uh, and pandemic doesn't that, hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it doesn't hurt to have that as, a, as the extra motivation when you're looking around saying, what else can the kids play with today? Absolutely. <laughs> well, this has been it's been a lot of fun. So thank you for spending the time. Um, I'm glad we waited because it was great to see the uh, it's great to see the success and kind of talk to you right in the right while you're in the thick of it, having just launched the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And I, I definitely learned a lot early on uh, when I learned about Kickoff Labs. I Shout out to Sheets and Giggles, Colin McIntosh. Uh, that's where I heard about you guys. And he has kind of become a buddy. And um, I listened to the On Growth podcast and wrote, read all the stuff. It was super helpful to learn that stuff. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing again. And uh, have, a, uh, have a great day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go try and figure this thing out. All right. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> Yeah, later, Connor.